This is Expert Voices, a podcast from Lloyd's Register, where subject matter experts and leaders in marine and offshore share market insights, technical views, and talk about trends and developments in our industry. This time around, we are talking about LNG as a fuel, how it has come to prominence in the past decade, how it is addressing industry requirements, and the risks and opportunities associated with its use. We will also be casting an eye further down the road and assessing LNG's role in the fuel mix given an evolving regulatory landscape. This conversation is being led by me, Nicola Good, the Head of Brand and External Relations for Marine and Offshore at Lloyd's Register, and I'm delighted to be joined by Stavros Hadzigrigoris and Paniagiotis Mitru. Stavros is now the Technical Director of Zodiac Maritime after spending many years with a keen focus on gas as the Managing Director of Marin Tankers. A recognized authority on gas carriers and an advisor to many classification society technical committees, he's also the chairman of Martecma, the Marine Technical Managers Association of Greece. Welcome, Stavros. Thank you very much. Panos is Lloyd's Register's Global Gas Segment Manager, based in Athens, and his primary focus is on the seaborne gas supply chain, LNG, and other gases as fuels. Welcome, Panos. Thank you, Nick. Well, LNG's potential has been talked about for many years. Its use as a fuel started to capitalize maritime headlines in October 2016, when the IMO announced that a global fuel cap of 0.5% would come into force. Stavros, you've been working with LNG for quite some time. Talk us through your experience. Any views on the evolution of LNG in maritime? What has surprised you most about LNG take-up in shipping? I'm going, thank you for the question. I'm going to discuss about LNG as a commodity and also LNG as a fuel. It was August 2003 when I received a late-night call from my principals asking me if we could manage to take over and operate a number of LNG vessels that were already contracted for a project that was cancelled. I replied that I had been on board an LNG vessels in DSME, our preferred shipyard at that time, and that my opinion was that we would be able to cope since we had steam engineers available from the steam VLCC ULCC fleet, tanker fleet, and that the deck operation of LNG ships was simpler than for other gas ships. Less than a week later, an agreement was reached and the first contract was signed in September 2003. The first ship was delivered in July 2005, less than 23 months from contract to delivery. Believe this is still a record. What we found extremely difficult was to enter in an exclusive LNG operators club that was dominated by Japanese and Scandinavian companies. Maran, my ex-company, is now approaching an active fleet close to 40 ships with an order book of more than 10 vessels. The first aspect of the LNG shipping industry that I found extremely interesting and challenging was the very rapid change in the technology and the size of the ships. From high-pressure steam to diesel-electric to high-pressure low-speed diesels and to low-pressure diesels. Now people are discussing gas turbines and possibly fuel cells. And all this, as already said, in a time period of less than 20 years. In the same period, the size of the ships has gone up from 145,000 cubic meters to 260,000 cubic meters and now back down to 200,000 cubic meters. Only two ships of this size have been ordered so far. 
and to the 174,000 to 180,000 cubic meters workhorses of the industry. At the same time, we have seen the evolution of floating storage units called FSUs, floating storage and regasification units called FSRUs, and recently LNG bunkering ships. The boil-off rate, the quantity of cargo that evaporates per day and has to be used as fuel, has gone down from numbers around 0.15% per day to less than half. Reliquifaction units of several technologies have been introduced, allowing the ships to trade at lower speed without wasting their cargo for steam dumping or burning it in the gas combustion units. The other aspect of the LNG industry that I found admirable is how close is the relationship between charters and operators, a close relationship that should be maintained by both parties in order to be able to deliver cargos in a safe and efficient way. Excellent. 20 years in LNG, that's um, quite impressive. What would you deem to be the key factors differentiating a successful LNG shipping concept to a non-successful one? Uh, You cannot see LNG shipping as an easy way to make money and go. If this is the idea, it is more probable that you will lose money before leaving. So, you must look in LNG as long-term business, splitting the fleet between long-term charters, now for a maximum period of 12 years with options down from 20 years in the early 2000s, and between spot charters, who have recently been as high as $350,000 per day for a very short period and as low as $15,000 per day just a few months ago. Waiting time is not unusual for LNG vessels operating in the spot market. The size of the company is also important. Operating a small fleet of ships will not be profitable unless the vessels are fixed long-term and long-term charterers prefer to select well-established company than newcomers. Quality operations is a must. The LNG industry is small and incidents get around the market at the speed of light. Efficient operations is also a must. Operators and charterers should work together to deliver the maximum possible quantity of cargo to its final destination. Crew training is very important since, as already said, the technology keeps advancing, new equipment is being installed on board, sometimes before being fully tested, and the time given to officers to learn is most of the times very limited. In-house training, both in technology and procedures, is important. I just covered the operational aspects, but efficiency is equally important. The greenhouse gases signature of the ships is already being evaluated and high numbers may result in speed reductions, paying a higher carbon tax or being penalized in any kind of emissions trading scheme. The efficiency of any ship is related to the cargo carried and to the instructions received from charterers related to the schedule of any ship. Operators and charterers should work together in an effort to minimize emissions. On top of the quantity of fuel or gas burning the propulsion and electrical power generating plant, no methane should escape to the atmosphere since it is much more damaging per kilogram than CO2. That's a very comprehensive answer, Stavros. Panos, is there anything you want to add? Yes, thank you, Nick. I would like to focus a bit more on the LNG as fuel element. So... Under the current condition, LNG as fuel has reached a business-as-usual readiness level. Availability of bunkering services is expanding on a global scale. 
abundance of LNG as a commodity and payback of investment in the banking supply chain may further strengthen its commercial competitiveness. Keys to its successful applications are mainly its fitness to shipping operations and mitigation of future regulatory risks. From the operations angle, capability of an undisrupted worldwide service based on the technology and capacity available on board, bunkering availability to the projected trade routes have already been attained for many key shipping routes segments. From the regulatory risk end, things have not fully crystallized yet, but it remains essential for operators to take into account worst-case scenarios on a well-to-wake basis. Methane integration to the carbon footprint, a global warming potential scale of 20 years, and evidently methane slip and methane-free operations on board are a must. If someone tackles all these links with the solutions presently and shortly to be available, then it is highly likely that such applications will prove successful. It seems that there's a lot of activity on the way, but is this the decade for LNG to benefit from its readiness? Um, Stavros, any views? Um, I will start giving an example. In 2016, it was discussed in IMO the possibility of extending the ban of high sulfur heavy fuel oil to 2025. The proposal was rejected on the basis of information of oil majors with reference to the availability of the fuel and of engine manufacturers with reference to technical problems related to the use of low sulfur fuel oil. After the 1st of January 2020, the fuel supply market was destabilized. During 2020, we have seen the differences in price between high and low sulfur fuel to vary between 40 US dollars per ton and 350 US dollars per ton. Serious problems with the main engines have been reported and the lubricants suppliers are still struggling to provide lubricants fit for purpose. The quality of low sulfur fuel is still questionable. On the other hand, gas is a tested fuel on four-stroke engines on ships since 2005 and on slow-speed diesel since 2017. Despite to the above and the progress made in solving the initial technical problems, engine designers and manufacturers are still struggling a bit to achieve a 100% stable operation. Why do I say all this? The design of the first ammonia engine will be ready in 2024, but for how long the engine should be tested before placing it on board an ocean-going ship? Large hydrogen engines are still in the brain of scientists. Biofuels are being mixed with heavy fuels and are currently being tested, but how much biofuel can be made available for shipping? The creation of the infrastructure for LNG bunkering has kicked off after efforts made for at least five years. What about the infrastructure for other alternative fuels? What about the cost? Concluding, I believe that LNG will be the only commercially available fuel offered at reasonable prices for the next decade. Will the conversion to LNG fuel cost more than the conversion to hydrogen? Most probably not. Excellent. And Panos, anything you want to add? Yes. uh, Thank you, Nick. Along the same lines, uh, I have to highlight and underline that at present, LNG is the only available alternative option to conventional fuels. Uh, I would also add that with vessels designs currently somehow exhausting their efficiency optimization potential and regulations like EXI and CII around the corner, informed LNG applications can make the difference between compliance and non-compliance 
while its enhanced carbon footprint can lead to further savings as more greenhouse gas measures will be deployed. As embryonic fuels technology is still under development, and above all, I would add, their infrastructure remains to be developed, it seems that this decade could be dominated by LNG. It remains essential, though, that the methane factor will be taken into account and any benefits will not be negated by fugitive methane. Given that there is so much uncertainty around about what this decade may herald, how is this impacting on the uptake of LNG? Do you feel that having a concrete IMO policy in place could work positively for LNG? Panos. Criticism to LNG related to methane emissions is not unsubstantiated and drastically tackling this challenge will remain key to its success as already mentioned. On the other hand, indiscriminately condemning the use of LNG seems unfair and unconstructive to addressing the problem. It has additionally impacted societally responsible frontrunners like the cruise industry. Cruise shipping companies refuge to LNG to reduce SOX, NOX and particular matters and were blamed on a climate aspects basis for using relatively poor methane slip performance technology, but at that time regulating emission of greenhouse gases was not on the table. Today, and even though this matter has been debated in a great extent, regulatory action and a crystal policy is not yet in place. This situation aggravates the LNG criticism risk and leads to lack of impetus and progress to drive technology progress in methane slip abatement solutions. With a more concrete regulatory landscape present, opting for LNG would not be deterred and ship operators would know exactly what kind of technology they should invest to justifying the additional capex. Furthermore, there can also be regulatory developments that could act in favor of LNG, like, for example, integrating a negative carbon impact in biogas and biogas blends. As the regulatory landscape will be crystallizing, LNG as fuel uncertainty will be fading away, while incentives to develop and uptake the right methane emissions abating solutions will surface. Um, Stavros, anything that you want to add? I'll try to express the ship owner's view. Ships have a useful life of 20 to 30 years, depending on their type and size. If an owner orders a vessel today, she will be delivered in 2023, and therefore she will have to trade without too many restrictions or unexpected financial burdens beyond 2040. Shorter measures that will be applied to 2030 will be put in place in June 2021. The playing field after 2030 is still undefined. As per recent information, our planet keeps warming, despite the fact that the shipping industry is making faster progress in reducing emissions than other sectors. The target set for the whole of the shipping industry for 2050 is a greenhouse gases reduction of 50%. Having said that, the demand for sea transportation is foreseen to increase on the basis that the population will increase at a quick pace, especially in Africa and South America, and this is why IMO has set stricter targets for the reduction of cargo carbon intensity of individual ships of 40% for 2030 and 70% for 2050. Emissions are being monitored since 2019 according to the UMRV and the IMO DCS schemes. The baseline has been set as the 2008 emissions. 
many ship owners are reluctant to order new ships that may have to trade in an unknown environment. This is the main reason for which we need to tackle with two issues. The first being to decide how new designs will meet the targets set by IMO and the Paris Agreement. It's nice that the US have now come back. And the second, to apply any new requirements universally and not allow exaggerated local rules to spill the soup. This is a must, I believe. I agree. It's, it's nice that the US is back in the Paris Agreement. And I mean, I think that, I mean, regulation needs to be universally applied. Um, Stavros, earlier you touched on sort of testing of ammonia engines and how this is going to take time and the challenges around hydrogen and biofuels. Do you see other greener fuels competing with LNG before the end of this decade at all? And when do you expect the LNG as a fuel window to close? I think we have discussed this, uh, this a bit already, but let me summarize a few points. The introduction of new fuels is not an easy task. We see that the oil majors have changed their position on which kind of fuel they will support and supply more than one time. New fuels will have to be produced at sufficient quantities to power a shipping industry the size of which is increasing. An infrastructure for the delivery of the new fuel should be created. The use of LNG as fuel has been delayed because the bunkering infrastructure has just started to expand. New fuels should be made available at reasonable prices that will not penalize the end consumer. There are a number of fuel alternatives that may meet the 2030 40% reduction in carbon intensity in combination with other secondary measures that will not be that expensive to apply. Such fuels are LNG on high-pressure diesel engines, which have already discussed, with a potential reduction of around 25%. LNG on low-pressure engines at around 18% if the new lower methane slip designs are proved to be successful. LPG with a reduction of about 16%, methanol at around 12%, and ammonia and biofuels that can reduce the greenhouse gases down to zero if not mixed with fuel oil. The current trend for ammonia is that a high percentage of pilot fuel will be needed, and the current trend for biofuels is that they will be mixed with fuel to be able to market them at reasonable prices. There is plenty of LNG around as we speak, and actually, even after the recent increase in prices, LNG is cheaper than heavy fuel oil or marine gas oil in energy units. Modification costs for LNG and ammonia burning are comparable, especially when we talk for conventional vessels, not LNG or LPG carriers. Cost for ammonia conversion may also be comparable to LPG. To answer your question in one line, it is clear to me that until 2030, LNG will be far ahead of any other fuel that is being discussed at this point in time. The LNG fuel window may not close soon if combined with other greenhouse emissions reduction methods like improved transportation efficiency, larger and slower ships, carbon capture, bio-LNG or other. Yes, indeed. There are a number of factors that we need to contend with. The challenges on the shipping industry are quite immense. Um, Panos, what do you foresee happening in the run-up to 2050 and beyond? Uh, along similar lines to what Stavros just mentioned, evidently, under the most optimistic scenarios, fossil LNG cannot mitigate more than approximately 30% of greenhouse gas from shipping on a worldwide basis. Make no mistake, 
it seems not feasible to expect meeting the IMO greenhouse gas strategy ambition without a dominant play of zero or net zero carbon fuel options. We therefore expect more solutions being added to the mix. It is imperative, I would add, that more effort and investment will be spent towards this objective. The key question therefore remains, where does LNG and methane stand in this? Despite uncertainty, LNG is one of the few solutions that may survive under a variety of scenarios. It can pay back its capex quite shortly at a reasonable level of certainty. It is proof to the development of competitive carbon capture solutions, while with bio-LNG it can tackle hybrid scenarios where carbon neutral and fossil fuels could be blended. On top of this, it could even benefit from carbon-negative footprint policies. Eventually, minimization of methane emissions in operations and supply chains, widespread adoption and scale economies, as well as adverse regulatory developments like a stricter global warming potential scale, will define its longevity. There is great prospect and incentive for the development and rollout of technologies that will future-proof LNG, like uh, carbon capture technologies, etc., as Stavros already mentioned. And in this sense, I remain cautiously optimistic about its long-term outlook. That's great. Um, Stavros, any insights you'd like to share? I think this is the most difficult question that you asked. (laughs) Personally, and as the effort to combat global warming is intensified, I do not believe that the 50% reduction in greenhouse gases will stay as it is. The EU is already discussing a zero emissions target. Zero emissions can be achieved with fuels that do not contain carbon or, as Panos said, if carbon capture methods are used. Carbon capture may involve the removal of carbon after or even before the combustion and the storage of the produced CO2 for reinjection into oil fields. Fuels and methods that can meet the zero carbon target are ammonia, hydrogen, biofuels, synthetic LNG or bio-LNG and other synthetic fuels and nuclear. Other methods that can reduce emissions and do not fall into the category of fuels are the use of wind power, solar power, fuel cells and batteries. It's a long way to go. Indeed, there is a long way to go. I'd like to thank you both for the insights you shared with Lloyd's Register. You've definitely given us plenty of food for thought and there's lots to ponder. There is no question that the maritime industry is facing up to emission challenges and that there are many solutions for addressing decarbonisation. And, knowing what I know about our industry, all the fuel options that exist will be carefully considered from a cost, availability, infrastructure and safety perspective. Interesting times ahead. Thank you for listening to this episode of Expert Voices. We hope you have found the conversation insightful. If there are topics that you'd like us to discuss, please email the team at expert.voice at lr.org. And you can find previous episodes at info.lr.org slash expert hyphen voice.